Russ Snow. Let me tell you a tale about a man. Russ Snow. He came from Maine and made his name. Russ Snow. He settled down in Old Brexville. Russ Snow. He lives just north of South Richfield. Brexville wouldn't be the same without his revered name. Kids, you need a hero. Russ will save the day, day, day. Oh. Russ Snow. He had a wife and a couple kids. Russ Snow. Killed many a snake. Oh, yes, he did. Russ Snow. Sold two oxen from Dewey's place. Russ Snow. If you didn't pay your tax, he'd be in your face. Brexville wouldn't be the same without his revered name. Kids, you need a hero. Russ will save the day, day, day. Oh, Russ Snow. Still has a house on Snowville Road. Russ Snow. He fired the bricks to build his abode. Russ Snow. The brick house where the snows were born. Russ Snow. To temperance is allegiance sworn. Brexville wouldn't be the same without his revered name. Kids, you need a hero. Russ will save the day, day, day. Oh, Russ Snow. Just call Russ Snow. Luther on the ukulele. Nice going, babe. Hey, everybody. You're listening to the South Richfield Podcast with your lovable hosts, the fat, bald, little, chubby, pale Scott Luther and the utterly annoying, insensitive coward, Matt Choma. Take it away, boys. Down, 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 down. Hello everyone, welcome to the South Richfield Podcast Show. This is your host Scott Luther. With me is Matt Coma, and we have a very special guest tonight, Jim Coma. Hey guys. Scott, good to hear from you. Hey Scott, how you doing? I'm doing great. It's wonderful to have both of you Coma boys on the line with with us tonight. And I know all of you out in podcast land are wondering, what? What's going on here? Well, Jim is our very first guest ever on this show, besides <laughs> comments here and there from Rachel and maybe the kids. Jim, well, the first official guest. Yeah, he is the first official guest that we actually lined up. Hopefully, the first Probably of many. Sh- what, what's Probably that say sh- about your? What's that say about your show? <laughs> I'm not I just sure. Want the green room to be left clean <laughs> That's right. after he's done in there. I, I know what can happen. <laughs> I didn't flush. <laughs> so uh, we want to talk to Jim because he has some exciting news. He's been he's been working on a book for like 13 years. Isn't that correct, Jim? It's a piece of local history that I've been working on. It, it has been for the last 13 years, but most of that's been gathering information. So uh, interviews with a lot of relatives working with the Richfield Historical Society, the Brexville Historical Society, and it's really about the life of Russ Snow, who was one of the early settlers here in Brexville, although he did do a lot of um, he did a lot of work in Richfield as well. So there's kind of an overlap here because he lived on Snowville Road, and Snowville is the name of the book. And being that 
he was on the line between Brexville and Richfield. He was responsible for, I think, a lot of the different uh, civic elements that took place in both uh, in both cities. So, in Richfield, he was responsible for helping set up education over there, schools and whatnot. And in Brexville, a lot of the same. He took an active part in in uh, taking a civic role in the community. But the point is, really, the story came about due to a, an old cemetery that my brother and I grew up on Columbia Road called Columbia Road Cemetery is what we always called it because it was there on the road uh, right in the bend. It's one of those small pioneer cemeteries. And when we used to walk by it, um, it, it wasn't a very nice place. It was kind of spooky, scary, overgrown. The, our parents always told us just to avoid it because of poison ivy. We were thinking more like ghosts, vampires, <laughs> stuff like that. So we we didn't uh, spend too much time there. But, you know, as kids, it always held an interest that there was a cemetery just down the road from us. So there was always something kind of neat about that. But as it turns out, years later, um, I was just going on a, a run and I had stopped there. And it was about maybe 2000 when I'd moved back to the area. And it was still overgrown. The gravestones were broken. It had gone into a lot of disrepair. And I had noted that it was not quite in the shape that it, the bad shape that it was before, but it was still pretty run down. So it was kind of right then and there I decided, you know what, I've lived by this thing all these years. Let's find out who's here. So I started at the uh, Richfield Historical Society just to do a little bit of digging. And it turned out that we found that there were some unmarked graves there. And I, it sparked my interest because there were a couple names listed there as to who those unmarked graves may belong to. And it was the Snow family. And I'd remembered through the years that my dad had picked up books on the snows that were self-published books by Dorcas Snow. She was one of the, um, she was a member of uh, Brexville Historical Society. And she had written these books just to give a little bit of background on her family's history, but it also encompassed all of Brexville because the Snows took a um, pretty active role in the development of Brexville. So I, I recognized the name from there. So I started to do a little bit more research, and I really couldn't find too much. But one of our one of our neighbors, uh, Peggy Talent, was friends with the Snows. So I got in touch with her just to find out a little bit more because I was curious. I mean, who was this person? Why does he have a road named after him? All of those questions came up. So I um, started to do a little bit of probing there. And Mrs. Talon put me in touch with Marcia Snow and uh, was able to reach out to Marcia. And we hit it off great. Uh, Marcia, I think now is 94 years old, but she is uh, an excellent resource for family history and local history. She's just bubbly, full of energy. And as it happens, she is kind of like the um, repository of all the snow information. Uh, everything kind of gravitates to her. So she had notebooks upon notebooks of full of pictures and articles. And as it turns out, she had um, a lot of the information regarding Russ Snow. She had his journals, his diaries, his, um, his notebooks, and the letters that he wrote back and forth to his family. And it encompasses that 1835 trip that he took out here um, in order to find better, a better 
situation for his family because again with that tuber tuberculosis epidemic uh, ravaging the uh, New England states at that time he didn't want to wait around for certain death as his family perished so he struck out west and as it turns out he met a friend in Cleveland on his way out I mean traveling a thousand miles and basically in the middle of nowhere when Cleveland was still just a straggling village he meets a friend from New Hampshire that friend by chance happened to live in Brecksville and the friend said you know you've been on the road for for upwards of a month why don't you come home with us and visit with the family for a while well Russ did that and all of this is recorded in his letters and his notebooks he, he jotted down everything along this trip that he had taken and um, basically his entire life is recorded in that way in some way shape or form so I was able to take that information that Marcia Snow had and put a story around it and I'll tell you what it is it is fan it was fantastic gripping reading for me because it just told the tale of an individual that very hard to say if this kind of person exists anymore that has the ability to be self-sufficient I mean the know-how to build a cabin to strike off on your own to get your own food to identify all the plants that were safe to eat out there to um, basically to, to do for himself it was just uh, it, it to me it's, it was an amazing story and as I started to write it, it there was a lot of false starts and stops but along the way, I was able to get a good narrative going, and it wound up being close to 500 pages when all was said and done. How did you know when you were done? Well, basically, it encapsulates his life. The story was is out there. It was just mm -hmm. a matter of taking everything and organizing it in such a way in a linear fashion. Because I think, um, think you had mentioned, or Scott maybe had accessed a book that's out online called The history of the family of Benjamin Snow. Right. And that was a family genealogy that was written in 1907. In the early 1900s, family genealogies at the turn of the century seemed to be all the rage. You can find a lot of them out there. And I think the turn of the, from the 19th century to the 20th century prompted a lot of that. So there was, um, I think, a drive to write these really extensive um, genealogies that go beyond the old dry here was so-and-so born this date died this date you know rather than a list there were stories that were told from individuals that still had all this information in recent memory for that time so the and family would write this in a in a narrative form some of them did the snow family did this they were um that was one thing about them is they were very literate they were very artistic uh the writers painters Musicians, all of that ran in the family. All from and Maine. Everything stemmed from Maine, oh. so any it just kind of grew out from New England out in this direction. And again, so, what year did he make the trip out here? What was the year? It was in 1835 when he made the the trip out here, and it was so, by it was on horseback. And so it's after uh, the War of 1812. Was wasn't Russ a a veteran of that war? He wasn't. He joined the New Hampshire militia, which is essentially the army, right after the War of eighteen twelve ended, and he did his service for four years after that. When he okay. was, when he was in um, New Hampshire, and then he moved to Maine after that point to start a family. So, 
again, back to the genealogies, though, that was really the core of where the story was from. Um, because there's Russ, all of his brothers, and then the descendants of that family are all listed in there as well. But when you read these genealogies, a lot of them are kind of kind of spotty, like a shotgun effect. There's a story here, and then maybe 200 pages later, another story on that individual. And while you may have a core story, there's lots of interesting bits that are scattered throughout that when you tie them all together, make great make for a great narrative. So I not only took that information, I took the additional details that were in his letters and his journals and his diaries that weren't recorded, as well as stuff um, that I've been able to find that in 1907 maybe wasn't readily available. Just going through sites like Ancestry.com, Genealogy.com, searching old newspapers, um, it, it became, it's, it's been an obsession for the last 10 years. So it's, when I find something new, it's, it's kind of like finding Hollywood memorabilia, like, or, or, you know, rock and roll memorabilia, where somebody might go, oh my God, Jimi Hendrix touched that tambourine? Like, oh my God, Russ Snow touched that rock? You know, it's just, it's funny how these things come about, but um, the, the act of discovery when, when going through the, um, the research end of it, I think I fell in love with a lot of that, and that's probably what took a little bit longer than it should have, too, because it's like... It's like finding uh, buried treasure every time I would come up with something new. Yeah, you were learning how to to research something as you were doing this. Yeah, I'm totally prepared for life in the 19th century now. So, um, <laughs> if something were to happen, I I think I stand a chance. But yeah, all of that information that he had to contain to survive. Um, so this all started with uh, you getting the interest in the in the cemetery. Um, what what transpired with the cemetery and, and, and the additional information that you learned? Did you learn who was buried there? You, well, that cemetery is, like I said, it's an old pioneer cemetery. Nobody really has any responsibility for it. There's no church associated with it. The township, I think, ultimately has responsibility, but for years it kind of went neglected until the last few years. But what we did, and it was actually on your idea, we... Um, I decided to call the University of Akron to come out and do a, a scan to see how many unmarked graves are actually out there. And on the surface, you see maybe about 23 stones, really old uh, stones dating back to about earliest as about 1837. But there, we thought there was far more than that. And there was also the rumor that Native Americans were buried there um, early on as well. So University of Akron Anthropology and Geology Department came out and they um, they did their scans over the course of two years. We had them come out, so we got a pretty conclusive survey. That while you may only see twenty three graves on the surface, there's upwards of about seventy five graves there, uh, maybe more. A lot of them just maybe never had stones, or a lot of them uh, the stones deteriorated because that was open for a while, and cattle would wander throughout there, scratch against stones, knock them over. The stones get buried and the like. But with the snowstones, what was different is around 1896, they had a family reunion, and one of the snow relatives just went in one night, gathered up all the stones there, and took them down to Brexdale's Highland Cemetery, and replanted the stones there, but left everything behind. So over time, people forgot where everybody was buried. So... Um, it was only through those notes that I found out that Russ Snow was actually there. 
And as it turns out, because of his military service, he was entitled to a military stone. So what I had done was petition the Department of Veterans Affairs and uh, send in all the paperwork and proof of his service. And uh, two weeks later, I get a call that there was a there was a 200-pound gravestone waiting for me with all his info. <laughs> so I went, picked it up, drove around in my car with it for about a week or two until I we were able to hammer out a date with the township. And then we got it put into place for him. So that's the newest stone that's in Columbia Road Cemetery is his military stone we put there in around 2010, I think it was. That pretty much is the end of where the book ends. So it goes through his whole life that I was able to glean from his notes, his journals, um, and his letters. And it ends basically with us placing the stone there kind of to cap off his, his long and um, interesting life. Yeah, the history of Brexville is is very interesting to me. I mean, I li- I've lived on the uh, pretty much the border as well all my life. And, you know, the first settlers in Brexville were right down the street at the corner of Boston and Broadview. Uh, I believe Seth Payne in 1811. Yep. And then he also had um, a son-in-law who actually lived across the street in Royalton Township on the other side of Broadview Road. And uh, they were surveyors, correct? For they Brexville? came with Moses. Yeah, they came with Moses Cleveland originally. Seth Payne was one of the um, early surveyors of Cleveland, and then he decided um, to stay here after he had seen the area. He came back and settled. What made Russ choose this area as a place to stay? Well, there's a couple... St- stories behind that he he had been traveling with his brother-in-law and nephew up to that point they stopped off in buffalo and they were masons by trade and buffalo was going under undergoing a huge rebuild at that time and um they decided hey we needed some money so we need to get a little extra cash so either wait for us here or you can go on ahead to cleveland and we'll catch up with you Russ didn't want to wait. He was anxious to move on and actually find, uh, to get to Illinois. That was the original intent, was to go all the way to Illinois. But as it turns out, he um, continued on from Buffalo to Cleveland. And when he was there, that's when he met um, his friend by chance. And when he came to Brexville, he stayed here for about a week. And he purchased some land on option, about maybe 100 acres or so. But with, he still had the intent to go on west. But as it after he was all done, he thought, okay, i got to go out and see what's further out west. Um, I hate to go, but got to do it. So he started to go, and his horse went lame along the way. So he decided this must be a sign. So he turned back, and he said, you know what? I'm making a stay here. This has got everything I need. It's got water. It's close to two growing cities. He meant Boston Peninsula or Peninsula, and he thought Brexville had some promise too. And uh, he decided to make his stay here, so he purchased um, about 400 acres then in the uh, southeast portion of Brexville, basically from where that brick house is, the red brick house, which is still on Snowville, is his house that he eventually built. From that point, all the way down to the uh, canal to Redlock. He owned all of that. Wow. And, and he didn't build that house for about nine or ten years. 
after he, yeah, they, he arrived. He lived in a cabin. Um, there was a cabin already on the site here that somebody had started by a spring. The spring is still there. You can go see it on his land, uh, but it doesn't flow as much as it used to. But he lived, he took his family from Maine, who they had a beautiful established wood frame house out there. They were close to all the amenities. The family was there. So they basically pulled up stakes from that beautiful established house and lived in a log cabin for 10 years until they had everything they needed to build the brick house, which they built from the clay, the sand, and, uh, I mean, everything was sourced from the land there. That house was built from the land. The oak and the walnut made up the interior that they had. The bricks, was made, were, the bricks were made from the sand and the clay in the ravine. Um, it's just amazing what one person can do. I mean, he had help, but with the family and the neighbors working as well, they put up a house, a barn, and it still stands today. So that's really a testament of the builders that it lasts from that it lasted from 1845 to this point and is still going strong. So as as you're researching all this information, uh, did you feel it was becoming an obsession? Did you know that you that you wanted to share the story, or did you see that there's a book in here? Uh, when when did you start thinking that you could write something about this? Um, it was really to get all the information out of my head, and I wanted to share it with the Snow family too because uh, everybody I've met, without exception, in the family, relatives, um, and direct Snow descendants, the the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. So. I knew that they had the genealogy from 1907, but a lot more information had been pulled from then. So I wanted to do it for these relatives so they can see the full story, everything about their relative, the, the patriarch of the family, really, um, Russ Snow, and bring it forward to that point, taking not only the information from that 1907 genealogy, but also add additional details in that have been discovered since that time. So with the book, I take not only photographs that I've taken throughout the years, but also other photographs that other family members from all over have provided. So not only did I get in touch with Marcia, who's local here to Northeast Ohio, but there's, there are relatives in um, Minnesota, relatives in Maine, relatives in Iowa, all of them just very generous with their stories. And being... Being the, the project took place in 1907 originally, it's just amazing they could pull together what they could at that time, and it's very comprehensive. But with the internet and everything that's available to us to search electronically, there's much more. So not only for the family did I want to provide this, but I also kind of felt that to Rust, I just kind of had a obsession to, to complete this. I Kind of a consuming thing, so much so that when I would bring something home, my wife would go, okay, just put it on the shelf there. And so I've got this stack, this repository of information that is just amazing. Um, but I think the story is good enough, though, and interesting enough that I think other folks would be curious as to how those folks live. Because I think you guys know as well as I do that there seems to be a big push of this farm-to-table sort of um, sort of philosophy that people have now of knowing where your food comes from, doing it yourself, that all is, that's how they lived then. And yeah. it, it, was, always, it wasn't a fad, it was how you lived. <laughs> right, when you said organic, it's basically how our great-grandparents ate. So yeah. 
That's so now it. that you now that you have this done, the obsession that was driving you do just is that obsession gone, or is is there a future work? Well, I had to I had to cap it off at some place because um, I. I, I kind of set a target for myself in the last year. I said, this has to get done because there's there's several people that are getting up there in age that I want to read this. So it was really a matter of bringing it to a close with as much information as I had. And I had a lot of it. It's just a matter of tying it together. So my hope is, is that other relatives might read it, might have additional information because the way that um, Amazon works, that's who I'm publishing through, you can always update the book, and anybody that purchases the book electronically will automatically get any updates that you send out. So, stories, well, that, photos. That, that's interesting. So, you're selling this through Amazon. If people are interested out there, in uh, of our many, many listeners, how can they go and, and purchase a copy of this book? Well, all of our relatives, for instance, that are listening, <laughs> can go out <laughs> to Amazon if they've got a Kindle or an electronic reader. And if they do a search on Snowville, the book will come up. It's due to go to come out October 24th, and it's originally going to be set for electronic only. There is a hard copy option that's out there, and I'm working with um, Amazon's publishing arm on that just to see how that'll pan out. It's a little it, that's m more expensive. It's about I think it runs about thirty five dollars per book, whereas the Kindle is just set at $3.99. But in that, you get 500 pages worth of information, photographs, all all in one place so that you can read it all right there. So well, those... Go ahead. I was going to say, this is, is an amazing accomplishment, and not only for yourself and the Snow family, but really uh, Brexville, Richfield, and the, the whole... Um, the whole community it's one of the the truly one of the founders of the area that made our communities what they are today he was certainly part of that i mean if it wasn't for him we wouldn't have this for instance the schools set up in the places that they are he was very vocal about that he wasn't a what i would call uh, a very nice guy he was very stubborn he was very dogged in his ways and I think he, he he could come across as a jerk because it was his way or the highway. But through him, I mean, roads were put through, buildings were erected in the center of town. He had a hand in in a lot of this. So yeah, he was one of the he was one I would call him one of the founding members of of Brexville at least in the contributions that he put forth. There's a quote from his great grandson um, Frank Wilcox who had said that. There isn't a place. There isn't a place in town that nothing in town shows as much as the hand of one man as as does Snowville. I messed that all up. <laughs> but we can fix it up in editing. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. But he um, he had a hand in a lot of different things. And you know what the thing is? Is I just stopped with with the snows when I did this. Anybody, if you if walking a cemetery, people find more of it. But I find it interesting when I see names that I recognize. And when you look at, um, when you walk a cemetery, all you tend to see are the dates, the names and the dates. You know, lived and that little dash that's supposed to encompass everything that happened in your lifetime and then your end date. And really, I don't want to be associated with that little dash 
that's why I think it's it's so important that somebody be there to record this information so that dash has meaning when you look at that gravestone. And that's what I think I tried to do with Russ in that rather than just being dates, there's a story. Everybody has a story and it's just how it's told. And I think that's the beauty of it in that I, I just started with Russ. Anybody, I think you could pull 500 pages out at least depending on you know the, the resources that are out there. So there's plenty of there's plenty more untapped stories out there. It's just a matter of people out there to out there to to write the stories. And I think you're probably telling one of the this is probably the biggest story in the founding of Brexville with his contributions to the town. I mean, even even uh, you know the founder or the the namesake of Brexville, Brexville. never even made never it to Brexville. Uh, he had died, and his three sons came out. And one of the, I read one letter that Russ had written to one of the Breck brothers, where he had threatened to sign a petition unless his his the three brothers donated to this cause he was working on. I can't remember what it was right now, but he was going to petition to have the name of the town changed from Brexville to something else uh, if if they hadn't if they hadn't done their part monetarily. Exactly. Yeah, that that was his way. Um, that was uh, Theodore Breck that he was writing to, and it was during the Civil War where what they tried to do is they tried to petition people for money so that somebody could take their place. They had volunteers that would take the place of any individual that would pay the family of this volunteer to stand in for him during the draft. So what Brecksville tried to do is they tried to raise $6,000 at that time to um, to pay for the young men in the area so that th those with families or those with certain responsibilities could have could pay somebody to go for them and Theodore Breck was not willing to pay and then then Russ decided to write that letter and let him know that hey this town's your namesake but it doesn't have to be <laughs> but he was also that way too there was another neighbor Lester Dewey who lived down the road they were trying to raise taxes for a new schoolhouse down the road, but Lester Dewey wouldn't pay. So what Russ did is he took an ad out in the paper, and he said, two oxen for sale on the Dewey property. Be there at 4 o'clock. So he went, took the, oxen, took the oxen, and then auctioned off uh, the oxen in his property and got the money for the, uh, for the school. I did read that's, that, that's, that as that, well. That's that the neighborly <laughs> way. <laughs> no, that's... Well, it really is a... a a tremendous story and the the whole part about it that you put there that really wraps it up nicely is uh, there's so much more to a life than a dash between two dates on a headstone yeah with every life and I mean again Columbia Road Cemetery you go there and you'll see that there were children um, there were also very old people that had passed away any cemetery of course but each of those had a story, whether it was their birth up to the point, uh, pregnancy up to the point of their birth, and they passed away. There's still a story there. Um, for instance, there's one story, I think it might be in Columbia Road Cemetery, and I know it's up in Fairview in Richfield, where there was one woman that um, she died in childbirth, and then she and her baby were laid next to each other in the casket and then buried, buried together up there. 
So there's a story there too. It's just a matter of somebody to do the research to tell it. And it's all in the telling how it all comes out. So I've tried to make it really readable, like the 1907 um, genealogy that the Snows had before, so that you're not just looking at dry dates and whatnot. There's there's details there to make it all all relative. And again, your book comes out on October 24th on Amazon. And uh, I know <laughs> I'm in a pre-order for sure. <laughs> well, thank you. As am I. <laughs> and there's there's two. And I was talking. Uh, about- you know, local history. There, there's a niche for it, and a lot of people find it find it interesting. It's just nice to know that I don't have to travel to France or to England to pursue, you know, a historical research. It, it's essentially in the backyard here for me, and I take great pleasure walking back in the snow woods and seeing everything back there. Things that he touched. I mean, you see the by walking around, you see the whispers of like human intervention down there still with blocks stacked and although they're overgrown you know that it was used at one time where they chiseled out these blocks for their basements and here they are here's the remains of all that it's very scenic very beautiful it's all parkland now for the most part all the areas that used to be his land but definitely worth looking and i'm glad it's been preserved so at least we have spots like that yeah it it sounds like you had some help on the book from from various people i was talking to mrs talent this morning at church and she said she proofed it for you she did (laughs) i do have people looking into it to help with the editing and um they do it you know just i'm thankful that they're willing to do it for free and mrs talent's been a very great about going through it and reading it and now granted our our friendship goes back a long ways but i was i told her just be brutally honest if there's something that doesn't look like it's going the right direction she said she loved it so i give that uh, that that's a good enough a stamp approval for me at least on that you but know. i think anybody that's interested in local history that specifically richfield or brexville i think will find it to be um worth the read and at 399 for an electronic copy for 13 years worth of work i think it's worth it yeah it's money well spent <laughs> Yeah. Well, you can definitely hear your your passion for it, and it really is, you can tell it's been a labor of love, and I, I know just talking with you over the years about getting it done, uh, I, I can imagine what it feels like to know that that it's over, and you, you finally have that off your back, and that you have something out there that that really can, a testament to, to what uh, a great man this was, and what an important figure it was he was in in the area's history yeah i mean i would uh, there were probably men of equal stature there it's just that we're fortunate and that all of this was written down and then i i was just able to compile it and put a story behind it so that it did flow in a linear fashion and i know with me talking about all of this a, a lot of my uh, i'm not a very good speaker in that respect a lot of my approach is like scattergun are going off on tangents here, but I think I'm able to express what I've got to say really well, at least in writing. And a lot of time, I think, was taken to lay this out so that I think it it, it does Russ no justice to um, to tell his story. But as for what happens next, I'll still continue to work because my interest is still here on it. But for now, uh, after 13 years, I think I'll take a little bit of a break and then maybe get get into something else. But. <laughs> It's been fun. I enjoy it. Congratulations on getting it done. Oh, yeah, um, that's the big part. 
thank you very much for coming on and sharing that with us. Sure, I hope I didn't put everybody to sleep. Well, that does it for our second episode of Season 2 for the South Richfield Rooster Podcast. Special thanks out to my brother, Jim Coma, famous author of Snowville, available at Amazon.com starting October 24th. Uh, All our listeners go out there and check it out. And if you have any questions or comments related to all things South Richfield, please check out our website or our Facebook page and our Twitter feed at at South Richfield. And it's under James Coma instead of Jim. So if you search by author, look for James or just type in Snowville. It'll come there right you go. up. You can pre-order it today. So it was awesome having Jim on. Thanks for lining it up. And if anybody else is working on anything local history-wise, let us know. <laughs> We'd love to have you on. Yeah, I'm going to start working on something, Matt. Well, I can't wait to read what you have. The Luther history in itself. No, I'm uh, working on the coma history. <laughs> oh, well, that's easy. All you have to do is go down to the Summit County Sheriff's Office. <laughs> <laughs> They've got all you need there. <laughs> well, you have a famous NFL, uh, what, cousin? Yes, John Coma played for the 49ers in uh, 1981 when the 49ers won the Super Bowl over the Cincinnati Bengals. You know, Super I, Bowl 16. I might actually uh, research his side of the family rather than yours. He sounds much what? more interesting. I could put you in touch with his mom, my Aunt Marie. (laughs) Nicest lady on the planet. All right, everyone. Like, Like Matt said, thanks for listening. Thanks to Jim for coming on, and we will talk to you later. Stay, uh... Classy? Lucid? Aware? Keep your eyes... On the sky, South Richfield, keep reaching for the stars just like Jim did. And you can accomplish anything. So long.